Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. Welcome back. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you, as always. And uh, during the week, by the by... You can join us 4 to 5 p.m. every day. The name of the show is Cudlow, Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. And if you can't get us at 4 for some crazy reason, all you have to do is DVR your favorite. No, all you have to do is um, is link, text. <laughs> all you have to do is text your favorite 9-year-old, and she'll show you how to DVR the show. i got to get that straight. Here we are in the middle of the summer. And by the way, here on this show, you can live stream us over the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. And we've got plenty to talk about today. We are going to be delving into the latest in the Biden scandals. Joe Biden is in a heap of trouble. I don't care what anybody says. Joe Biden is in a heap of trouble. And all these... um, Goings on. Now we have a special counsel who's not so special. It may probably all be a lot of baloney. But this business about Merrick Garland appointing David Weiss, who was the guy who presided over the original sweetheart deal that not only kept Hunter Biden out of jail, but also gave him blanket immunity. I mean, it's kind of a crazy story. I'm a non-lawyer, obviously. We will be talking about that from a political angle uh, with Joe Concha and Charlie Hurd, and we will also be bringing in some crackerjack lawyers to talk about some of the legal aspects of this thing. But really, Joe Biden is in a heap of trouble. The net is closing. I mean, I want to, don't forget, by the by, The uh, Congressional Oversight Committee, Jamie Comer, chairman, uh, we had him on the show Wednesday. I guess it was Wednesday night. No, it was Thursday night. I can't remember which one. I was off yesterday. But, um, you know, he unveiled a whole bunch of new uh, scandals. His bank account, follow the money. That's always the best way to investigate. Follow the money quite apart from the mental and legal gymnastics that goes on and the political gymnastics. And, you know, he uncovered from actual checks $8.1 million from China 
to a Hunter Biden run committee, $6.5 million from the Ukraine to a Heiner Bunny, that was the famous Burisma one, to a Hunter Biden committee. Three and a half million dollars from Russia. That was this uh, former first lady of Moscow who, <laughs> for three and a half million, she avoids all sanctions. She avoided sanctions over the Crimea. She continues to avoid sanctions uh, over the Ukraine war. $3.1 million from Romania and $142,000 from Kazakhstan, which I think was to bail out a um, some kind of Kazakhstani oligarch, but the the prize there was a $142,000 Porsche. Actually, it was a, a Fisker sports car, but later traded in for a plug-in hybrid. So that was $20 million. Uh, some people say there's another $10 million floating around. This was Jamie Comer. And that's very, very important. You know, following the money may ultimately be the single most important aspect of this because that's what's going right into the Joe Biden coffer, the big guy who gets 10%. And that's really important. I don't want to lose sight of that. We'll talk some more about that over the course of the show, at least the first half of the show. But then it comes, of course, comes the blockbuster news that uh, Merrick Garland is appointing this guy David Weiss as the special counsel. And um, I don't think anybody, I mean, I really don't think anybody buys into this. Because this was the same guy, as I said, who put together the sweetheart deal for Hunter Biden. And the worst part of that deal, not only did the statute of limitations run out on huge tax liabilities and got off easy on the uh, illegal gun charge, but perhaps the major thing was uh, Hunter Biden's failure to register as a foreign agent And I raise that point as a foreign agent, and as I did in my interview with Jamie Comer, uh, these are all monies from foreign countries for favors. This is uh, pay-for-play, is it not? This is influence in peddling, is it not? And this Foreign Agent Registration Act business, which was kind of an obscure part of the law, becomes major in terms of all the money that transpired, and then, of course, the search for whatever favors were given. And these were favors not bestowed by Hunter Biden, but these were favors bestowed by the United States government for Hunter Biden's clients. So you can say Joe Biden, even with the 25 phone calls, or however many, that Devin Archer, uh, who was a witness a couple weeks ago, talked about. You can talk about the phone calls, but what, ex- what did he do? What did, what, what did they get for their money? What products? What services? Well, this will unfold over time. I think we know some of this with respect to the... Uh, prosecutor in the Ukraine that was tossed out in the Burisma case, and this uh, woman, the former first uh, lady of Moscow, and um, 
Also, the Romanian story where the oligarchs uh, were relieved of their prosecutions and the Kazakhstani Porsche. But the point is, these were favors given to these people from the U.S. government, which in all likelihood had something to do with Joe Biden. That's the key point. That's why the money trail is so important. And we will go on from there. Now, I don't know how this prosecution is going to go, this special prosecutor. I mean, what is he going to do, reopen the case? The plea deal has been blown up. Hunter Biden's not sleeping well this weekend because he will be tried in court. It will be an open court trial. And then the question is whether all these foreign connections will come out during that trial. And I reckon, I'm just going to guess, we'll get legal advice on this later in the show, but I'm just going to guess that these foreign deals will come out. He will be under oath. And he will be asked tough questions by somebody, I guess. I'm talking about the trial. That's different than the special prosecutor, as far as I can tell. We'll explore that. But that's a question I'd like to ask. Prosecutors, one thing, trials, quite another. And so we'll have to find out. What did he do? What was the family business? What goods and services for 20 million or 30 million? And what foreign influences have occurred. I'd like to know how much this has compromised Joe Biden's foreign policy with respect to Russia, with respect to Ukraine, with respect to China. On that point, I don't care so much about uh, Romania and Kazakhstan. I care a lot about China. I care a lot about Ukraine and Russia. How has this compromised Joe Biden? And then the question is going to be whether this will obstruct, block the congressional investigation. And I want to raise this other point we need to take up today, and that is um, uh, what's going to happen to the impeachment inquiry. I'm not sure what is. I mean, it's hard to get a straight answer. But when Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, talks about launching an impeachment inquiry when the Congress comes back after Labor Day, it's a couple weeks from now, I believe you need a congressional resolution that will expand the width and breadth of the investigations from the judiciary and the empower the judiciary and the oversight and the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, I think you need additional subpoena power, which might be coming from such a resolution of uh, inquiry for the impeachment. It's not an impeachment per se, but it opens the door to additional subpoena power. I think that's the deal. We'll We'll hear from our legal friends as the show proceeds. That's another part of this angle. You step back for a minute, and you can see that the web's closing. The news is closing around Joe Biden. Hunter Biden's trials and travails now 
will be on the front pages daily, weekly, monthly throughout this campaign. And the questions about his linkage with Joe Biden will, of course, be right there in the same paragraphs. I think this changes everything. That's why I want to talk to uh, Joe Conch and Charlie Hurt in a few minutes on the half hour because, I mean, let's step back for a minute again. The charges against Donald Trump appear to be completely trumped up. There's, there's no money charges against Trump. There's no pay-for-play charges against Trump. There's free speech charges against Trump. There's presidential documents which have nothing to do with criminal prosecution. Those charges, they're all phony charges. There's the Alvin Bragg charges against Trump, which never made any sense at all. And then you're going to get another one down in Georgia, which again is a free speech charge. Mr. Trump believes he won the election. I don't happen to agree with that, much as I admire and respect him, but it doesn't matter what I think. It's what he thought. You can't prosecute someone criminally. He believed he won the election. That's what this is about. But there's no money transpiring. There's no pay-for-play favors. There's no bank deposits. There's no nothing but a bunch of politicized, weaponized charges. In this case, you have actual money changing hands, a good deal of money. And so the questions there are, what'd you get for that money? And the questions there are, well, what about Joe Biden's role as vice president? And how did the U.S. government reward these people who paid into into Hunter Biden's committees. There wasn't any investment. They weren't managing money. They weren't investing in stocks. It wasn't a SPAC. It wasn't a new investment fund. It wasn't a startup business. It was favors. So you have a phony special counsel. The trial's blown up. Now we go back to square one on the foreign interventions. The blanket immunity is gone, and the money is still there, feeding into Vice President and now President Biden's bank accounts or a Biden family fund, BFF. I don't know. I'm just asking a bunch of questions. Now I guess the last one is if, you know, this has been raised legally, Andy McCarthy and others. You're going to appoint a special counsel. If you look up at the special counsel law, the special counsel is supposed to come from outside the government. When <laughs> David Weiss, this fella, who said, by the way, he didn't want a special counsel. <laughs> then he said he did. Then he said he didn't. Nobody could figure that out. Merrick Garland yesterday said he finally did ask to be special counsel. It doesn't matter. He's not a special counsel is not supposed to come from Maine justice. It's not supposed to come from inside the government. It's supposed to be somebody with integrity and experience from outside the government, which means that person he or she would not be under the thumb of Merrick Garland or Joe Biden. Come on, Are we supposed to believe this really? 
I don't know. I'm going to take a quick break. There's so many questions here, but I will say this. The noose is tightening. Joe Biden is in a heap of trouble, folks. He is in one heap of trouble. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, apart from these um, scandals and whatnot, we did have a CPI inflation report out this week, and it was good, but it was bad also. Two things. Uh, The good news is the top-line inflation rate is down to 3.2%, as expected, and... um, That, of course, is way below the 9% peak that we had about a year ago, a little more than a year ago. On the other hand, it's the first time in many months that the top-line number has actually gone up a bit. It was 3% last month in June, so it's 3.2% in July. That's not a good trend. The core rate, excluding food and energy, which includes labor costs, spiked up to 4.7% over the past 12 months, 4.7%. The biggest hike there was shelter, but uh, wages are part of that, services, wages. It's very important. So it was kind of a mixed bag. And as you know, gasoline is now back up to $3.85, which is going to add several tenths more to next month's. Next month's probably be about 3.5%, 3.6%. So inflation is still a big problem, inflation, as we call it. And then there's this really weird story. Speaking at a Democratic fundraiser this week, uh, Biden <laughs> starts talking about the misnamed Inflation Reduction Act which he's, he regards as one of his biggest uh, biggest triumphs. And he said, well, I, w- I wish I hadn't called it that because it has less to do with inflation than it has to do with providing alternatives that generate growth. Well, he's talking about climate change. This is the Green New Deal. And um, that bill may be as expensive as $1 trillion dollars which will, over time, add more and, of course, to inflation and continue to fight against fossil fuels. So we got an inflation problem lingering, sticky inflation, and we'll get to that later on in the show. Joe Biden, other ways to promote growth. No, it isn't. All you have to do is produce more oil and gas, get those prices down with more supply, but he won't do that because he's stubborn. And this ultra-left-wing war against fossil fuels continues to damage ordinary middle-class working folks. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a quick break. Stay with us, please. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, it's Lou Dobbs for Priority Gold, America's precious metals dealer. These are volatile times with high inflation, soaring debt, wars on multiple continents, and rising financial stress. Central banks are buying gold to diversify their reserves, so are many Americans. Call Priority Gold and find out how precious metals can help you diversify your portfolio. They're highly rated and happy to help. Call 1-866-303-6357 or get a free gold guide at PriorityGoldGuide.com. That's Priority PriorityGoldGuide.com From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Uh, all right, hi folks. Uh, we're getting some tech technology problems here, but we'll try to power through. We're trying to talk to the great Joe Concha, the Messenger and Fox News contributor, and Charlie Hurt, the Washington Times and Fox News contributor. Charlie, are you there? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Charlie, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? I'm not hearing him. I'm sorry, Charlie. This is a problem on our side. Uh... Sure. We'll talk One, some more. Two, we might have to take another commercial break to try to figure this out. All I'm trying to, all I'm trying to do is figure out what the politics are for Joe Biden. Even though, look, I'd be the first guy to acknowledge uh, so far that we have not been able to put money in his pocket. Okay, it's all indirect, but the bank deposits again. This is the key point that Jamie Comer keeps making from the Oversight Committee. You follow the money, and you have $20 million uh, coming through from China and Romania and Russia and Ukraine and Kazakhstan that was announced this week. Now, those are bank deposits. They have actual records of that. And it's gone into these funds that were set up uh, by Hunter Biden and his pals or his former pals, and the idea is that at least some of those monies were used to help finance Joe Biden's day-to-day expenses. There is, of course, still the biggest amount of money uh, directly attributable, or at least alleged, I want to use that word alleged, that is from Burisma, the $5 million bucks that went to Joe and the $5 million bucks that allegedly went to Hunter. That has not yet been proven yet. Uh, there are, what, 17 audio tapes that are still out there. Uh, two of them apparently uh, went to Joe and the other 15 went to Hunter. That came from the guy who runs Burisma, the Ukrainian oil and gas company. But again, once you follow the money, these uh, suspicious bank accounts are very indicting. And uh, that's what uh, Jamie Comer and the Oversight Committee is focused on, along with the Ways and Means Committee and along with the Judicial Committee. So all of that is yet to be, I mean, the, the buttons haven't been completely buttoned down yet, but that's indicting evidence. That's very difficult. And uh, I don't know that this David Weiss special prosecutor business is going to have any impact on that whatsoever. The special prosecutor business is supposedly about Hunter Biden 
and the plea deal, the sweetheart plea deal that blew up, which, among other things, secretly at first gave him a blanket immunity until Judge Norieka in the Wilmington, Delaware court, she's a federal judge, she took a look at it and said, where'd this come from? And uh, what defense do you have for this blanket immunity? And both sides says, well, we don't really have a constitutional defense. And then that was postponed 30 days. And now, of course, Merrick Garland, who was Joe Biden's handpicked attorney general, has now given us a special prosecutor. We don't know whether any of that is going to be affected uh, by the uh, congressional investigation. And again, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, is talking about an impeachment inquiry which would expand the subpoena power and the width and breadth of the subpoenas uh, to call in witnesses, Hunter Biden being a witness. Eventually, they want to bring all the Hunter Biden and Joe Biden family members in, those who had these LLCs, this labyrinth of LLC accounts. They want to bring them all in and ask them questions about how that money got into their LLCs, what was the nature of the LLC businesses, and where did that money ultimately go? These are questions that are all going to have to be answered. And my point is, none of this, as the process plays out in the months ahead, as it will, you've got very determined Republicans here, that process is going to be devastating for Joe Biden's re-election campaign. There's a uh, tip insight poll, very good pollster, TIPP. They said that those people that understand, that those people following this story, 63% believe that uh, Joe Biden broke the law. 63%. That's a big number, almost three-fifths. So that's setting the stage. That's setting the table. We still have our terrific uh, uh, guest, Joe Concha, uh, and uh, and Charlie Hurt, both Fox News contributors, were trying to clear up some technical problems. Let's take another break here, folks. I'm Cudlow. I um, beg your patience on this. Sometimes these things happen in life. We will be back as soon as we can. Hang on with us. Larry Cudlow. Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. It's Larry Kudlow. I think we fixed the technology. One can only hope we're going to jump right in. Charlie Hurt, Washington Times opinion editor, Fox News contributor. Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger, Fox News contributor, author of the book, Come On, Man. The truth about Biden's no good, horrible, very bad presidency. Thank you for your patience, gentlemen. Listeners, thank you for your patience. I don't want to do my monologue. What do I know? I want to hear what Charlie Hurt and Joe Concha think. Charlie, are you still there? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? <laughs> I got you. I think we. I got you. All right. We're cooking. <laughs> anyway, we're finally cooking back. And so, as, as, as I said, this is a bit like Watergate. All the news is bad news yeah. for the president, and you are about to respond. Tell me, tell me what yeah, you're thinking. And- I think that, you know, obviously the lesson from Watergate was um, that if, you know, it's always it's the cover up is usually the, the worst part. And, you know, we're in the midst of a cover up and it just got a whole lot more serious. The cover up did. But what I think is interesting is the fact that that I think that the whole the larger story 
which is the thing we've been talking about for months now. Um, but there's a huge segment of the population, uh, especially on the, the Democrat side of the ledger, who are not aware of the story and have not been paying attention because they've been, you know, the New York Times lied to them about it. And suddenly it's become so serious and it's broken through to those d- Democrats and those Biden supporters that the Biden White House feels the need to do something like that. And you just mentioned uh, a minute ago, showing that 63% of the people are concerned about this. Um, it, it, it just proves they have a political problem in their hands. And as long as Joe Biden remains their nominee going into 2024, they have a real problem on their hands. You know, that's an interesting point. Joe Concha, does this affect, you know, we're all talking about Joe Biden's mental problems and his physical problems and so forth. But would this add to the possibility that um, additional candidates might jump into the race? I would say, Larry, with any other party, you absolutely (laughs) would see another candidate jump in whose name isn't Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or Marianne Williamson, you would have a Gavin Newsom jump in or pick your you know Democratic governor here. The, the, the thing is, though, with the Democratic Party, as we have seen time and again, they are impossibly loyal in terms of sticking together. And I just can't see a Newsom going rogue at this point without approval from the, the party hierarchy, whoever that may be. So I, I think Joe Biden stays in this race. I think that a lot of people are already they've already made up their mind as far as who they're going to vote for. There isn't a lot of swing voters left mm. anymore. But when you consider that Georgia came down to 10,000 votes and Arizona came down to 12,000 votes and Wisconsin came down to uh, a couple of tens of thousands of votes, which is, you know, minuscule in a presidential election, it doesn't take much to swing the pendulum. So in the end, Joe Biden ran on being the honest guy who will bring normalcy back to the White House. It'll be just like the Obama years, no drama Obama, and some people were suffering from Trump fatigue at that point. Obviously, we're going through the pandemic as well, and now you see that Biden can't run on being the great family guy, given that it took him four years to acknowledge a seventh granddaughter. He can't run on being honest and trustworthy, given that two-thirds of the American people believe that he may have broken the law here as far as all these payments from Ukraine and China and Kazakhstan and Russia, which clearly... Obviously, $20 million to 10 members of the Biden family. And you're telling me the head of that family, whose name was the reason you got that money, didn't get a dime of it? How did he get that $3 million beach house in Rehoboth, Delaware again? How did he get that multi-billion dollar house in Wilmington, Delaware on a senator's salary and on a vice president's salary? None of this makes sense. The American people know it. The question is how many people will say, you know what? I was on the fence. Now I'm going to vote for Trump or I'm going to stay at home. That's the big question, Larry. Well, and Charlie, you know, to those tough questions, look, the, <laughs> Peter Ducey of Fox News is not going to be the only guy to ask those questions. He might. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, it, and, I, and, I, and I think that's where the that's where the danger is for the Biden family now, or for for the in White House now, is the fact that you know that, that's where they're tipping their hand. We turn to a special prosecutor in this case. It's because they realize that the winds have shifted and they're going to start getting those questions from people other than just Peter. And how long can they, I mean, (laughs) the, the congressional hearings will continue 
And the congressional hearings, to some extent, are different than the Hunter Biden trial in Wilmington, Delaware, or wherever this special prosecutor thing is going to be. I don't know all the details yet. But, I mean, every time Congress, every time the Oversight Committee and the Judiciary Committee and the Ways and Means Committee, Charlie, every time they hold hearings, now they're trying to follow the money and uh, draw these bank accounts in and uh, and from the uh, uh, investors, or so-called, or the payoffs that uh, Joe was talking about. I mean, they, every time they do this, all the other right. questions are going to be there. I mean, the, yeah, you can't every, ignore this, it, uh, Charlie. Yeah, you can't, every, you can't ignore it. Every rock they've turned over, they right. salamander right. or a crawdad, and and we're only a par- partially through that process. And um, and and there are lots of records that we know exist that that Comer. Got, hadn't seen the contents of, but we know that those records exist. And so, I, you know, who knows? You know, maybe we have, maybe they've uncovered 90% of the damning information, but it's very possible that they've only uncovered 10% of it. Mm. And between now and the end of the year, or now and a year from now, it's going to be a, a mountain of even more evidence that's n- nothing but horrible for the Biden administration. All right, fellas. Again, Thank you for your patience. We're sorry we had these technical problems. Joe Concha, the messenger and Fox News contributor. Charlie Hurd, Washington Times, and also a Fox News contributor. I'm Kudlow. On the other side of the break, technology permitting, we're going to delve into some of the legalities of this thing because there's a can of worms opened up by this Merrick Garland appointment of David Weiss. I'm Kudlow. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you. Hopefully, we worked out our technology, technological issues. We're going to look at the uh, whole Biden legal fiasco from more of a legal standpoint. We bring in Greg Jarrett. Fox News legal analyst, New York Times bestselling author, Trial of the Century, Great Book, Scopes Monkey Trial, Clarence Darrow versus William Jennings Bryan, and Will Scharf, former federal prosecutor, uh, now a candidate for attorney general uh, from the state of Missouri. Gentlemen, thank you. Um, Greg Jarrett, let me begin with you. I don't understand why this David Weiss is the special counsel. I thought a special counsel was supposed to come from outside Maine Justice and from outside the U.S. government, so it's an independent counsel. I don't understand this. Can you help me? Well, I think this is cover-up and corruption by Merrick Garland, who made the appointment. You're correct. The attorney general is not allowed to appoint David Weiss's special counsel. Take a look at the federal regulations. 28 CFR uh, 600.3, he can only appoint someone, quote, outside the U.S. government, Hmm. as you correctly pointed out. That's what the regulation states, which has been codified into law by Congress. Weiss is conflicted. He works for Joe Biden, as does Merrick Garland. And Weiss is accused by IRS whistleblowers of political interference to protect the Bidens, allowing the statute of limitations to expire, tipping off Hunter's lawyers, scuttling search warrants, foreclosing questions about Joe Biden's involvement, and, of course, negotiating this absurd plea deal. 
Like, Weiss is the last person on earth who should be special counsel. This is a guy who effectively blocked the case. So, you know, Larry, I think the fix is in. It's a sham. And Weiss himself is actually getting a sweetheart deal out of this. Now he doesn't have to answer any questions from Congress about his own obstruction and suspected lies that he put in writing. So, you know, I my guess is Hunter Biden yesterday was doing cartwheels. He not only got rich, he got away with it. <laughs> well, Sharf, uh, you know, Merrick Garland, whatever one thinks of Merrick Garland, he's not entirely stupid. He knows that everyone is going to make the points uh, that Greg Jarrett just made. Why is he doing this? I mean, is this something he thinks he can get away with? Is this the, he thinks that he's not going to be criticized uh, by Republicans? And by the way, I think Democrats are going to, I won't say Democrats, but even in the mainstream media, uh, Jake Tapper of CNN is now asking tough questions about this. It's up on Fox News today. Why in God's name would Merrick Garland do this? Why wouldn't he go outside Main Justice and the government to get a real special prosecutor? So I think the Hunter Biden investigation, Larry, had reached a crisis point for two reasons. Uh, one of those reasons was the fact that Judge Nareka in Delaware blew up this corrupt plea agreement that they'd agreed to, which would have given Hunter broad immunity from prosecution in return for him pleading to a couple of misdemeanor tax charges. Uh, the other crisis point is because of exactly what you're describing, that Congress is starting to look at this more and more aggressively and having Weiss testify in front of these three House committees uh, could potentially expose even more corruption. Uh, so the appointment of him as special counsel really kills two birds with one stone, because one, it allows him to bring whatever cases he wants to bring in jurisdictions other than Delaware. It gets the case out of Judge Nareka's courtroom, and in their view, hopefully in front of a judge who's willing to kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, and look the other way on the whole Hunter Biden uh, series of issues. And the other thing is it provides Weiss at least some protection from these House committees going forward. So I think that, you know, Garland is eyes open about the fact that he's going to take a, a political hit as a result of this decision. Uh, but this solution that they seem to have come to very neatly settles these two issues. One, it gets the case out of Delaware, out of Judge Nareka's courtroom. And two, it protects Weiss uh, from the House chairman who were really starting to dig in on, on the Hunter Biden uh, case. Greg Jarrett, does that, will that matter? I mean, the issue of um, getting jurisdictions in California and Washington, D.C. did come up. A lot of people said that Weiss wanted that, but it was turned down. So if he has that open field running now, does that matter? No, I think they'll drag this out, uh, let even more statute of limitations uh, run. He can pretend to be conducting a legitimate investigation and do, as he did before, nothing at all. But I will say that, you know, Carlin's appointment of a special counsel, having ignored it and ignored congressional demands for two and a half years, underscores that, uh, you know, the IRS whistleblowers were telling the truth mm. uh, when they said that Weiss appeared before them in a pivotal meeting face-to-face and said, you know, 
Garland won't let me uh, be special counsel, and U.S. attorneys appointed by Joe Biden uh, blocked my bringing cases in Washington, D.C., and California. So, you know, now it looks like, uh, you know, Garland was lying in front of Congress when he said, oh, Weiss has total authority, didn't need special counsel status, never asked for it. Weiss, at first in writing to Congress in response to questions, said, oh, I had complete authority. And then he said, well, no, I didn't have complete authority. I only had jurisdiction in Delaware. Well, one of the two is is true. Neither uh, can be true. Um, and so, you know, Garland appointed Weiss to protect himself and mm-hmm. Weiss. What, uh, Will Scharf, what's the remand here? What's the jurisdiction? What's the assignment? How broad could Weiss go uh, if he pursued this honestly? Look, I, I said on Twitter the other day, if, if uh, you know, the winds change and Weiss just, just decides to go rogue, decides that he's had enough carrying baggage for the Biden administration, this could get really interesting really quickly. I mean, a special counsel does have uh, broad, uh, wide-ranging authority uh, to pursue uh, pursue investigations and prosecutions. Um, I think that's unlikely here. I mean, I think Greg and I are in agreement that uh, this looks like part of the Hunter Biden cleanup operation as opposed to a legitimate special counsel investigation. Uh, but potentially, I mean, we all know what Hunter Biden's criminal scheme looked like. Uh, the statute of limitations has run on, on likely on some of the charges that could be brought against him. Uh, but on others, my guess is that a, a, a real special counsel investigation, uh, a, a real federal prosecutor with the, uh, the cojones to go after him uh, could build a very interesting series of cases, potentially even reaching all the way to, uh, to other Biden family members, including Joe. Well, yeah, I mean, um, Greg Jarrett, I'm trying to figure out also here, again, as non-lawyer that I am, Lord knows, is this about a trial or is this about a special prosecutor's broad-based investigation? Because I think the two are different. Well, I think you're right, and I think Will has has put it correctly. Um, and that, yeah, I suppose there's an outside chance that Weiss had an epiphany, uh, you know, and suddenly got a case of the for reals and said, I, I got to stop covering up. I got to stop lying. I got to stop protecting Hunter Biden and Joe Biden by implication, uh, because I know of incriminating evidence uh, that implicates Joe Biden is complicit in his son's influence peddling schemes. And maybe maybe Weiss will do the right thing. But I mean, this is a guy who has tried his level best for five years to, uh, you know, suppress and get rid of any criminal case against the Biden. So, you know, that epiphany it strikes me as a long shot. <laughs> but he did say, I mean, look, I, I don't know any of the stuff that you guys know, but he did say in front of a bunch of people at some meeting that um, the powers above him would let him do what he wanted to do. Remember that line of reason? I mean, he was a Trump appointee or was he not? I know he's kept him over, but he did say at one point that um, there was interference. And so I just wonder whether he might want to come clean. I mean, he has a conscience. I I don't know whether he goes to confessional or not, but at some point maybe the guy just figures out he should do the right thing. That's always possible. 
Well, I doubt he has a conscience. I think he feared <laughs> criminal prosecution himself for lying to Congress in his three letters in which he told three different stories yes. and seemed to be doing the bidding for Merrick Garland, who also appears to have deceived Congress. All right, we're going to take a quick break. David Weiss not doing so well. Greg Jarrett, on the other hand, is doing great. Fox <laughs> News analyst and New York Times best-selling author. So is Will Scharf, former prosecutor and candidate for AG out in Missouri. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. Much more to do. This is the Larry Cudlow Show on 77 WABC. Back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, a legal analyst, New York Times bestselling author, the book is Trial of the Century, and Will Scharf is a former federal prosecutor and now candidate for attorney general in the great state of Missouri. Well, if I were Hunter Biden, I wouldn't be all that happy because uh, his blanket immunity has been lifted and he's probably going to face a trial of some kind and the trial is not going to be very happy for him. All right, the other week, Hunter Biden walked into a Delaware courtroom expecting that in return for pleading guilty to two misdemeanors, the slate was going to be totally wiped clean for him, that he was going to walk out of court with an ironclad guarantee, not subject to judicial oversight or review, that he wouldn't face prosecution for his long history of foreign influence peddling. That deal was you know, scrubbed off the table by Judge Nareka in Delaware, and it doesn't seem to be coming back. I mean, Hunter Biden is not out of the woodwork yet, uh, or not out of the out of the woods yet. Uh, and if I'm him, I'm I'm sweating every single day until this case is finally resolved, uh, because he knows what he did, and he knows the the legal jeopardy that he'd be in if he faced a, a real prosecution. I just worry that this appointment of Weiss, as, as Greg said before the break, uh, is just another step by the, the Garland Justice Department uh, to, to advance a cover-up as opposed to advance an actual prosecution. But at some point, Greg, isn't somebody in a trial or the special prosecutor going to ask him, oh, by the way, uh, you got all this money you set up all this labyrinth of LLC accounts. Uh, what did you get for it? What did they get for it? Where did this money go? I mean, aren't they going to ask him difficult questions? Or, for example, you never registered with the Foreign Registration Act, but this is all foreign money coming in. I mean, aren't those questions going to be asked by somebody at some point? Well, they can be asked. Uh, that doesn't mean that Hunter Biden has to answer them. He can, you know, always invoke, uh, you know, the Fifth Amendment uh, right against self-incrimination. He doesn't have to answer those questions. I think there are others uh, like Eric Schwerin, uh, James Gillier, uh, all of his other partners, in addition to Devin Archer, may be able to expose the corruption and the crime. Uh, but, you know, who else is complicit in this? The the media apologists for Joe Biden. Hmm. I'm always amazed and amused at how they pretend to be lawyers. Uh, for example, this week, CNN's Jake the Fake Tapper told his viewers, wow, you know, influence peddling may be sleazy, but it's not a crime. Seriously? I mean, if Jake bothered to read and comprehend the statutory law, he discovered that influence peddling 
is called bribery under the criminal codes, using a public office for financial gain by selling promises of influence. You know, and another frequent lie by the media muttonheads is, well, there's no crime because it hasn't been shown that Joe Biden received any of the money. Wrong again. Read the bribery statute, 18 U.S.C. 201. It's a crime if the money went to a person or entity other than the public official. And the third lie is that Joe Biden never conferred any policy benefit Mm. in exchange for the millions in cash. So there's no crime. Well, that's not what the law says. Biden didn't have to deliver on anything. The promise itself in exchange for money is bribery. Hmm. And you think you'd some of that's got to come out? No, I mean, it just seems to me inconceivable that that wouldn't come out. Larry, if, if I could break in, you know, speaking as a former prosecutor, based on the revelations that are already uh, out there in the public record, I think I could take a bribery case against Joe Biden to a grand jury tomorrow hmm. and get them to return an indictment. I mean, that's how bad it is. And as as Greg said, the fact that the media is willing to talk about this, you know, this is about Joe Biden loving his son who was a drug addict. And the fact that they're willing to cover up what's probably the greatest political scandal in American history really speaks volumes to how debased our mainstream media has become in this country. Well, so let's go. I mean, in Congress, they're following the money, all right? J- uh, Jamie Comer's following the money, which is very, very important. Is that going to be impacted by this? I don't think so. I mean, they're going to continue to look for these suspicious bank accounts. They've discovered this labyrinth of LLCs. They've got former, uh, you know, best friend forever, Schwerin, is going to be uh, testifying or, or appearing uh, before the Oversight Committee will. I mean, that investigation will not be affected by the special counsel. It shouldn't be. Uh, so you have the, the three committees. One of the most interesting ongoing investigations here is actually the House Ways and Means Committee investigation uh, into the, the various issues with the IRS. Uh, but, yeah, you have three House chairmen who seem committed to uncovering the truth. And I think they will. I think those investigations will continue, and I think there will be more revelations down the road. The problem is, on the back end of that, where's the accountability? If you have a Department of Justice that's unwilling to bring charges, if you have a Department of Justice that's going to continue running cover for what I believe is the Biden crime family, uh, you know, to what end? It's great to know about it, but I want action, and I think that's a that's where the appointment of a real special counsel would 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 answer uh, answer a lot more questions. And Greg Jarrett, just in the last uh, forty seconds or so, impeachment inquiry that's going to broaden the scope. It takes a resolution from Congress, I think, but that's going to bite into this, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Look, there's a plethora of evidence that Joe Biden was aiding and abetting. These influence bribery schemes, that makes him an accessory. And remember, bribery is an impeachable offense. Right. So there are more than enough grounds to bring proceedings. All right. Greg Jarrett, thank you ever so much. Will Sharp, thank you ever so much. Folks, we'll take a quick break. Other side of the break, we're going to go back to the inflation problem. Bidenomics still failing. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So apart from the Biden scandals, we've still got an inflation problem and a Bidenomics problem. The Consumer Price Index came out this past week. All items top line up 3.2%. That's certainly better than 9, although last month it was 3.0. The core rate, ex-food and energy, 4.7%. And gasoline prices still going up, and so are grocery prices. Anyway, let's uh, talk to my great pal Michael Falkender, professor of finance at the University of Maryland, uh, chief economist of the uh, AFPI and former assistant secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy. Michael Falkender, what did you make of the CPI? Has the progress now bottomed out and we're going to head a little higher, or is there still more downside? I would say that we're probably starting to head higher after this because the CPI report is does not really include the rise in oil prices and the commensurate increase in gas prices that we're going to see coming because it occurred at the end of July. And so when you look at the Chinese government looking to reinvigorate their economy, when you look at the impact of the OPEC cuts, those were only at the end of July starting to push oil above $80 a barrel. And, Larry, as you recall, it was originally the increase in oil prices that that then permeated the rest of, of the inflation because, as we've mm. talked about for more than a year now, you know, it's not just the production of, of goods and services. It's also then their transportation and all of that is going to be impacted by increasing prices of oil. And this comes back to the war on American energy that the Biden administration declared on its first day. And so we don't have the reserves, and, and they're not going to be able to dip into the strategic petroleum reserve to try to offset that this time. Yeah, they've depleted the SPR. Uh, you're exactly right. $3.85 gasoline, AAA, Mike, three eighty-five. That, I think, got as low as about three thirty-five. A few months ago, that's going to show up in the top line CPI, right? That is, that's right. It'll show up, but and it'll also indirectly show up in core because if you've got petroleum products that go into the manufacturing of non-energy goods, and then you've got the transportation of, of any kind of goods and services, that's going to raise prices for the production and distribution of those things, and it'll show up in in core as well. Um, so it's, it's misleading when people think that. Uh, if you take out, if you just look at the core number, you've taken out energy. Well, no, energy still indirectly affects uh, the core number. I'm still looking at grocery prices up 3.6% year on year. Uh, seems to me that is still a problem. And overall, I mean, if you go all the way back to the beginning of, uh, of the Biden administration, you know, the, the CPI has gone up 16%, groceries up 20%, energy up over 30%. I mean, I think people still feel that, no matter what these year-on-year comparisons may show. That's right, because people never had their wages recover from the inflation that we had from the early part of the administration. And so simply because 12 months have elapsed, 
doesn't mean that people aren't still having challenges in their budget arising from the price increases that occurred earlier on. And so even though they're starting to get lower numbers, as you just said, it's because the, it's because a lot of the big increases were more than 12 months ago, so they're rolling off the 12-month number. But the price index still has not gone back down to where, you know, anywhere close, and it probably won't, uh, to where it was when the Biden administration took office. And so unless we get significant wage gains, Joe Biden's going to be going up for re-election, you know, running on Bidenomics that has led to some of the steepest losses in real wages in, in, in a long time. What happens to the rest of the economy? I see the, um, the ISM, Institute of Supply Managers Manufacturing, continues under 50%, Michael, I think the eighth straight month. And I think uh, the ISM for services showed some additional weakness and the housing market looks still soft. What's your overall view of the economy? So the consumer-driven part of the economy looks weak. So we're not seeing significant increases in retail sales. As you said, households are not making significant reductions in residential investment as a result of the 22-year high interest rates that we're facing. Instead, what we're seeing is a lot of the growth coming out of government spending. And we, we've talked about that also, Larry, for the last two jobs reports in a row, the significant growth has been on the government side, whether it's government directly or it's things that government pay for, like health care and social services. That's what's been driving some of the recent growth. And so, again, what is Bidenomics for people? It is government-directed, top-down, massive deficit spending that's unsustainable. And that's why we're seeing very low productivity numbers under this administration. Um, and, and, of course, Biden admitted that this week, right? I mean, it, <laughs> and I, I, you got to it before I did. <laughs> I, well, I was wondering when we were going to get to it, because the notion that Biden actually came out and said, no, the Inflation Reduction Act wasn't really about reducing inflation. <laughs> At a Democratic fundraiser, I'm going to give you the quote. I wish I hadn't called it that because it has less to do with inflation than it has to do with providing alternatives that generate economic growth. What's he talking about, alternatives that generate economic growth? Well, that's what's funny is because when you and I talk about growth, we're talking about <laughs> private sector investment and engaging in activities such that people want to work and be productive. He's, he's back to your favorite Keynesian types of models that say, well, if we just spend, if the government spends a lot of the money, that's the source of economic growth. But of course, if government spending is directed towards low productivity activities and it crowds out private sector actions, then no, it, if anything, stifles growth. Uh, but, but there, but he and his friends at, at the CE, you know, at, at his Council of Economic Advisors are full of Keynesians who think that Government spending's got some massive multiplier on it that's going to generate growth, even though we know that that's not consistent with reality. You know, that uh, misnamed uh, Inflation Reduction Act, that the original estimates, I don't know, were about $350 billion, but that has been re-estimated because of these open-ended uh, subsidies for electric vehicles and whatnot. I mean that thing could be seven eight hundred billion dollars. I mean, so there's some serious government spending potential in that bill. But you're right; that's the way they look at the world. It's all about government. It's not about private investment. That's right. It's not the American people deciding what kind of cars they want to drive or what kind of stoves they want to use. It's Biden's bureaucrats saying, "Well, we don't like these. We don't like internal combustion engine cars." And so even though Congress said that the batteries have to come from the United States, 
or from countries that have trade relations, free trade agreements with the United States. We're just going to rewrite the rules. We're going to ignore that part of it. And so his Treasury Department puts out a set of rules that, as you said, cause Goldman Sachs to say that that bill is going to come in hundreds of billions of dollars more than they had originally forecasted because they're just going to ignore the sourcing requirements. So just so everybody understands, we're, we're going to borrow money from China to run massive deficits so that we can import cars from China and in the process displace American workers who are making the things that Americans actually want to buy. That is Biden on it. Yeah, that's great stuff. Actually, you know what? You reminded me. I think the Goldman estimate was $1.2 trillion. And I think the Penn Wharton estimate was something similar to that also. Uh, Mike Falconer, what's the Federal Reserve going to talk about? They're meeting in a couple of weeks at their famous Jackson Hole meeting. You, do you go to that, by the way? Do they invite you to that? I, I have not yet been invited to it. I look forward to the day when I'm part of that uh, invite list. You know, you know, another group who hasn't invited me, Larry, is, is the World Economic Forum at Davos. I'm not too high on their list either. So. I used to go to that Fed conference, and then all of a sudden I wasn't invited anymore. That was quite a few years ago. Um, what do you think Jay Powell's message is now with inflation at 3.2 and possibly headed higher? You know, I I think he knows full well that his legacy is going to be whether or not he gets inflation back to 2% by the time his term is up. And so I think he's going to be singularly focused on that. He knows that the legacy of the reputation of Fed chairman come down to their management of inflation. And given that he was at the helm claiming transitory inflation when we got the 40-year high inflation rates that we did, uh, I, I think he's going to nearly be singularly focused on that and keep raising rates until he gets the recession-creating uh, 2% inflation rate that he's demanding. All right. Michael Falkinder, great rundown. Nobody does it better. We appreciate it very much. Folks, we're going to take a quick break and come back with Nicole Jolinas of the Manhattan Institute. This New York City migrant problem, illegal migrant problem, is just off the charts. It's a complete and utter disaster. And it doesn't look like there's any solution in sight. We're going to take a break. Nicole Jolinas up next. I'm Kudla. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So besides Biden scandals, besides Bidenomics, we got a Biden immigration problem here in New York City. Now, it's all across the country, and it's about open borders and this and that. But the city of New York is a catastrophe, and we're going to bring in Nicole Jolinas, Manhattan Institute Senior Fellow, Contributing Editor of the Manhattan Institute City Journal. Nicole, thank you for this. It's been a while since we spoke. Good morning, uh, Mary. Nice to be back with you. Yeah, and I'm sorry. We have too much time is elapsed. I know. You, you know, kiddo, I drive uh, to work. I get the car. It takes me down to Fox every day. I got to swing around. The Roosevelt Hotel, I go down Park Avenue, I swing around 47th through Vanderbilt to get to 45th, and it just blew me away. Hundreds and hundreds of migrants there, and then you've got cameras and this and that, and it just seems like a complete disaster, and I know it's a widespread story, but the question is, what what's being done about it, if anything? Well, the problem here is that New York, City offers a right to shelter to any person, literally from around the world, who shows up and 
presents him or herself as needing shelter. So this is a 40-year-old practice back in the Koch administration in the early 1980s. The city signed an agreement in in a lawsuit that said it would provide shelter to indigent homeless men in uh, lodging houses and said the settlement said men who have uh, physical disability, mental disability or psychological disability, they shouldn't be living out on the street with nobody helping them and left to their own devices. The city should provide them a cot and some meals in a lodging house. But that has, you know, I don't think that many people would object to that, but that has now morphed to instead of we will house indigent uh, men and basically almost a hospice to tens of thousands of families and potentially more than 100,000 families showing up having never spent a night in New York City and the city volunteering to provide them with hotel rooms, entire apartments. Uh, It's simply not sustainable. So uh, this is um, like... Mayor Adams yelling at Washington and getting no help. I don't know what Governor Hochul is doing about it. I noticed, uh, I think, what's his name, former D- uh, Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez, I think that's his name. Yep. Uh, he was in town this week, but he had no solution. As I understand it, he basically told uh, uh, Eric Adams, you're just going to have to wait until the election which is a long time from now in terms of a problem like this. I mean, the question is, what are we going to do about this mess? Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I don't see why the mayor thinks that Washington should be paying for this. This is a benefit that New York City voluntarily provides. We, we are attracting people to cross the border and then come further north to New York City by doing what no other city in the world does and and provide shelter to any comer. So I think the city should cease this practice. I mean, Adams keeps saying, we're out of shelter. We don't have any more room, but yet he keeps opening up more welcome shelters. He invites people to sleep outside the Roosevelt when there is no more room at the Roosevelt. So, you know, we've always had some level of irregular immigration, but people come because they have a job, usually an off-the-books job, lined up already through a network, you know, construction network, nanny network, restaurant network, and they've got a bed in a in a rented room in a basement somewhere. You know, these are not optimal practices, but you'll never have uh, zero tolerance for irregular immigration. We've always had hundreds of thousands of people in the city who were not authorized to be here, but they had jobs. They had found themselves private lodging. You know, I don't think it's uh, worth much in resources to go after those people. But this is very different, where over the past year, people have showed up and demanded city shelter. And they have no way to get out of that city shelter once they're in the city shelter. So, you know, very uh, different change of practice over the past year. And it's not even a financial issue. You know, Adams keeps asking Biden for money. But money is not the issue here. It's just a physical lack of room. You know, we only have 125,000 hotel rooms. We need our hotel rooms to rebuild the tourist industry. We don't have tens of thousands of apartments sitting empty. And empty apartments should be going toward people, whether immigrants or not, who can afford to 
to rent an apartment. The speed distorting this market by renting apartments at above market prices is just not a sustainable practice either. And as you write in one of your New York Post columns, I mean, this is prime real estate, Grand Central Terminal, J.P. Morgan is building a bank, you're fronting Madison Avenue. As I said, I see it as we swing through Vanderbilt. Uh, what does this do to tourism? Actually, what does this do to just, you know, people coming back to work in New York? I mean, there's still, we're still, I don't know, half the people or only 60% uh, are really still uh, have, have, have actually come back to work post-pandemic. Right. I mean, people people basically go to work Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Yeah, so we're at 60%, as you said, uh, hybrid work. But if you don't have to come in, and you you get off Metro North at Grand Central and uh, Grand Central, and you are greeted by uh, dozens of of men sleeping on the sidewalk. Uh, it, you know this is something that the next day you might say, you know, I don't really feel like doing this. I'll stay home. I'll work at my computer at home. I'll spend some time with my kids. If you're renting office space in Manhattan, which with a double digit vacancy rate, close to twenty percent, we need new leases. Is this the environment where you want clients from around the world to come and visit your your Class A office? And you know, I'm not saying uh, that we we should deal with the problem by hiding the problem away somewhere. You know, we've always had homelessness issues, but this is not the traditional homeless issue. This is promising people that you have shelter, and then actually being so far beyond the capacity that you don't have the shelter to offer them. As you say, I mean, Mayor Adams is asking Washington for money. I thought I saw the number $12 billion at some point. Uh, What the heck? Even if they gave it to him, what would he do with it? What does that have to do with anything? Yeah, I mean, this this money would just further distort our hotel and our housing market. You know, as Mm -hmm. you know, you you know your economics uh, that the – if you have a limited supply of hotel rooms and apartments, the more money you have, you're just bidding up the price. I mean, the city is competing with the private sector, tourism, business traveler, and regular people trying to rent housing in spending close to $400 a night to, to lodge people indefinitely. And, you know, you started off talking about the border crisis. I mean, I don't let Biden off the hook either. You know, you have to have a sensible immigration policy, having people wait 10 years to hear an asylum case and mm. from judging from uh, many of the interviews of these individuals on the street, many of them are not going to be eligible for asylum. They're economic uh, migrants. Uh, should we increase the number of economic migrants? Uh, that's something for Congress and Biden to think about. Should, should we speed up this asylum process? Absolutely. But having, you know, millions of people come into the country with a false promise that they're going to be eligible for asylum and sort of sticking them into the shadow economy, this doesn't make sense for anybody. I mean, uh, those are all really important points, uh, by the by. Um, You know, my other thought, listening to you, does New York have to be the biggest sanctuary city plus in the country. And you remember, Nicole, go back years ago, you mentioned Ed Koch before, uh, who I thought was a pretty good mayor on the whole. Yeah. Um, 
Ed Koch used to say, do we have to be number one in welfare benefits? Do we have to be the number one in housing benefits? Do we have to be the number one in sanctuary city benefits? Right. It's not dissimilar to when (laughs) advocates were encouraging people to New York City in the 1970s and encouraging them to apply for welfare rather than apply for a job. Although, of course, all of those people were legally eligible to work. But this is the first time since that era that we are purposely increasing our social services spending with no real endpoint in sight. I mean, once you've given someone a hotel room and you know some people have small children, you're not going to be able to say, all right, we're kicking you out now. I mean, you're still yeah. not eligible to work in the country. You still have no uh, no way to get uh, housing uh, because you didn't. Nicole Jelinas. Nicole Jelinas, Manhattan Institute. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Something's got to be done here. Folks, we'll take a break. On the other side, stock market work. I'm Kudlow. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you. By the way, during the week, please join us. Fox Business Name the show's Kudlow. Every day, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. And if by some reason you can't get there at 4, just text your favorite nine-year-old and she will show you how to DVR the show. And here you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. You can listen to us throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and especially the Milky Way. <coughs> We're going to do some stock market work. How about that? Get away from the Biden scandals. Sort of get away from Bidenomics, but not exactly. Stocks were a mixed bag this past week. The Dow was up a couple of hundred points. The NAS was down a couple hundred. The S&P was kind of flat but slightly negative. We've had a good year so far, year to date. The broad index, uh, S&P 500, is up 16%. The NASDAQ, 30%. The Dow Jones, 6.4%. Last year, at one point, it was down 20%. Stocks have basically gone nowhere under Mr. Biden. Anyway, let's bring in our two good friends and experts, Jack Berusian, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, and Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial and uh, Notre Dame University. So, fellas, I want to start with this one. I'm going to toss it to you, Jack Berusian. Get ready. It brings joy to my heart. Sam Bankman-Fried is sent to jail. (laughs) I know this is not exactly what everyone in the market is talking about, but I couldn't help it. It was in the Wall Street Journal this morning. 
this little crooked little crook who wrecked Bitcoin or whatever he wrecked. What comes to mind on this? I mean, what does this do to the Bitcoin story? And I mean, I think he deserved to go to jail because he is a crook. But Jack Bruzen, well, you're a man of the world. What do you think of this? The first thing that comes to mind is is, is what Terry Duffy, the chairman of the CME Group, said over a year ago in an interview where he called him a fraud on national television. Yeah. All right. He says about he, he said basically this is a Ponzi scheme. This is nothing more than a fraud, and he caught a lot of grief for that comment. All right. Oh. Because remember, you're talking about somebody, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, who was giving a lot of money to certain politicians and to certain groups, who turned to Terry Duffy and to turned to, to us in Chicago and said, "How dare you point a finger at this man?" Mm-hmm. And guess what? They all got bit. And the yeah. reality is that he is now going to jail, and he deserves to go to jail. By the way, so did, so did Corzine, who walked away from, from, from ruining, all right, man, and, and lost $50 million of my customer money, all right, at a time. Remember, this has not been, this is nothing new. This has been happening for a while. Larry, I think we all know it, but I'm just glad that that finally, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost a little bit. What did Corzine do? I forgot about the Corzine piece. Oh, Cor- Corzine took EDNF man, leveraged it up to uh, to ninety nine percent, and then basically blew it all out with the segregated funds that my customers and others had there. But mm. it did definitely it completely. But he was a, put a black eye on okay. our industry. Senator Jack. He was a senator, yeah, so it's okay to do that. You remember that killer? You remember that killer? And it took us, in, and some of the customers took, what, took five or six years. They finally got 10 cents back on the dollar, and Corzine's now living on a beach enjoying his retirement. Boy, it's just horrific. True. But, you know, to this Bankman-Fried weasel, Larry, I'm so glad he's going to jail. But this just epitomizes where we are in 2023. The reason he really got thrown into jail is because he was – sending over 100 emails, and then he made over 1,000 phone calls to members of the press trying to weasel his way out of this. And he wrecked yep. lives. Let's be clear. Just like Corsine, just like Sam uh, Fried Bankman, wrecked lives and stole money. And this is just a Ponzi scheme. It's, it's just a different covering, right? And at the end of the day, uh, there's going to be another Ponzi scheme that pops up with a different type of costume on, but it's nice to see a little bit of karma go to this little weasel. What is this, uh, Jeff Kilberg? What does this do to the Bitcoin story, if anything? I'm looking. At, I call I call all crypto Bitcoin, which is wrong. I shouldn't do that. But Bitcoin itself is twenty nine thousand three eighty eight. It's actually had a good year. It's up seventy. I got seventy seven, seventy eight percent. But what does this do to the crypto story, if anything? I think you have to, I think you're right, Larry. You have to keep it mutually exclusive where Bitcoin is a finite number and blockchain. I, I, I respect that and I think it is investable. It's not the, the magic, uh, wand that's going to really resolve all of our currency issues that have been going on for centuries. But I think what's interesting about Sam Bankman Fried, I think this just amplifies and underscores this looseness, this lack of regulation and these stable coins. I'm hearing more and more about stable coins. And I think this whole ecosystem is just an environment for fraud. So when you talk about what's tangible, I talk about U.S. Treasuries. I talk about blue chip tangible stocks. And I think this whole world that we're kind of going into continues to have the Sam Bankman freaks pop up. And they're all going to jail. At some point or the other, they can bribe all the people they want. They can email. They can call. At the end of the day, they're, they're scum, they're weasels, and they deserve beyond bars. So I'm feeling a little fired up right now, Larry. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> this is great. But, Jack, I mean – there is, I mean, not all of it's bad. Some of it's legit. 
No, no. Some of it's legit. Remember, let's separate crypto as we're talking about, like Bitcoin and some of these other stable coins from blockchain. Blockchain and the technology that surrounds blockchain is revolutionary. It really is. It is now taking uh, entire ledgers, entire entire industries, and, and really making them much more efficient yeah. in a way that we never dreamt of before. So, so separate the two, and I think it's important to do that. Uh, but, what, you know, but what Killer is talking about is, is important. Remember, we're living in a world where fiduciary responsibility is taken very lightly for some reason. And, you know, when, when you're trusting people with, with, with big amounts of money, and, and, and it's starting to reveal another big problem. Larry, and I think we realize that the people that are making the rules simply do not understand the technology oh, that is going behind it. That's they a really have, important they are, point. They are now dinosaurs. When I have a Diane Feinstein, all right, making mm. a decision over blockchain technology, I scratch my head and I say, "What the heck is going on?" Because so that's, that that's is one of the biggest really, problems. That is really an important point because. You've got a jurisdictional dispute, let's see, the Commodity Trading uh, Commission versus the SEC, Jeff Kilberg. I don't know if you're onto this or not, but you've got, I mean, I'm going to say the whole lot of them don't understand this new technology, but, you know, maybe there's a few staff people do. But you've got a jurisdictional dispute in, in Washington about this, and we do need some safeguards. I'm not a big regulator. You guys probably aren't either philosophically, but you do have to have some guardrails. You do need guardrails. And look, you know, Jack and I, born and raised in the Chicago Board of Trade, which, you know, evolved in the Chicago Mercantile uh, Group, the CME Group, and we've always had self-regulation there. I think it's really important. And I think what's interesting, and Jack hit the nail on the head, I think blockchain, I think the technology is going to dramatically change our lives. And you interact that with you know, AI, which is all the buzz in 2023. That's why anything that touches artificial intelligence is up with NVIDIA up 180% on the year. But I think the blend of those two really need to be carefully monitored. And I'm not saying that we have to be adverse to technology. I was one of the youngest guys in the pit who adopted into the handheld tablets to trade electronically side-by-side the arbitrage in the pit. So I'm a big believer in technology. I think it has to be accepted properly. And I think Elon Musk has really hit that over the head. On deaf ears, though. Um, you know, Jack, just uh, Jeff took the words out of my mouth. Uh, NVIDIA shares tripled in 2023 so far. All right, it's a graphic uh, chip maker, but it's based, you know, that's what supplies the chips for um, artificial intelligence. NVIDIA up uh, tripling this year, and pretty much all the AI stocks have boomed. That's driven the NASDAQ way up. What do you make of that story? I think it's been a, a bit of an overhype. Uh, I really do. I, you know, look, uh, I, do I believe that artificial intelligence is gonna, is gonna change the landscape of how business is done over the course of the next decade? Of course. Uh, I think anybody that, that, that doesn't believe that is, is a Luddite. All right? Let's, let's face it. I mean, and, and that's the, the reality of it. But, um, is it, is it to the point where valuations, uh, can be actually given to, to stocks at these levels? I don't think so. And, and there's a and there's a flip side to this story that we're starting to see in China. You know, China's been years ahead of us in AI, and people don't understand that. And now China is starting to see the 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 effects of real deflationary pressure caused mm. by AI, and people don't understand that. 
right? But when you start to see the displacement of workers through robotics, the displacement of workers, uh, you know, through, through the fact that you no longer need the clerical level, that whole middle bureaucracy is now obsolete. It's changing the dynamic of workforces around the world. And China's the first one to feel it because they were years ahead of us. So let's pay attention to what's happening there. That's, that's an important story. But won't AI increase jobs, create new products, create new companies? Maybe it'll make things just more efficient than they are. All right, uh, you know they might, but they'll do it without the, the without the thirty or forty teams of technologists and 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 physicians and and PhDs that you had before. Maybe they're only going to well, do it with two. Uh, and, and that and was fascinating, Jack. Just to jump in real quick, that was fascinating. When Microsoft talked about AI, no one's really talked about the cost of artificial intelligence and meeting that demand. And Microsoft, on their earnings call, talked about that, and that's why they sold the stock out 3%, 4%, because, yes, AI is going to bring tremendous growth to all of these tech stocks, but it's also going to come at some form of a cost. Jeff Kilberg, will AI replace talk show hosts? <laughs> no, it can't. Uh, at the end of the day, I think, you know, two quick things, Larry. Yeah, and to respectfully push back a little bit on my, on my buddy Jack here in Chicago, I think the NASDAQ, the tech stocks, were oversold to the downside. There was tax loss harvesting last December, so they were oversold down nearly 40% in 2022. This snapback, I do believe, is a little bit overdone. We've seen some profit taking the last two weeks. But at the end of the day, artificial intelligence and how it's going to be implemented into not only our daily lives, but the technology we use in our cars and our planes, I think that is in the early we're, – we're still kicking the ball off. A little football analogy here is we're here almost at college football. I think we're just kicking off this AI, but it is going to come at a cost, and that's the difference in the first eight months of 2023 that a lot of investors haven't really uh, interpreted, that it's going to cost something, not just all gravy. All right, kids, we'll take a quick break. Jack Berusian, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial, Sam Blankman, Freed, may he rest in no peace. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back with some macro on these stock markets. Stay with us, folks. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks with Jack Berusian, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group. And Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial. Um, all right, fellas, what's your macro look at the stock market? Uh, start with you, Jeff Kilberg. It's been a pretty decent year so far. Inflation is down. Economy not yet in recession. Earnings slipping but not crashing. What do you make of it, Jeff? Well, you know, I had cautious optimism back in Q1 and Q2, and I had a price target of 4600 Larry. We went, we printed 4600 and it served as short-term resistance. So here we are, seeing some profit-taking right around 4450 I think it makes a lot of sense, and I actually see it quite healthy to see this. It's an old term we use in the pit, like Jack would know, back and fill. We're seeing the market back and fill, put in some volume here, but I think the trajectory continues to move higher, but short term with the 10 year at 4.16, that's going to pump the brakes a little bit on this rally. But I think as it continues to build momentum, I think you're talking about this earnings season we're wrapping up right now. We're going to be looking at Walmart this week. We're going to be looking at Target. We're going to see how the consumer is doing. And right now, Larry, the consumer reveals resiliency all in 2023, which is in contrast to a lot of predictions. Uh, Jeff Bruzian, what's your take on oil? Crude oil, West Texas, 83 bucks. Brent crude, 86 and a half bucks. Gasoline, $3.85. What do you make of it, Jack? 
You know, energy is fairly stable. It really is. A lot of that is because of the fact that the dollar had weakened so much over the course of the last, say, eight months. You know, if you had taken that, say everything had stayed the same and the dollar had not done what it did, uh, we wouldn't be talking about energy today the way we are. But if you look at other groups, if you look at, say, the ags, um, they are a great story. You know, you're looking at at corn, at soybeans now, at, at lows that we haven't seen in years. You have, you know, nat gas under three dollars and then of course you know copper and lumber which are the the mainstays of what you know these builders are using are are a quarter of what they were at the highs so you know all of these supply chains now are starting to show surpluses Uh, remember at at one point they were all shortages so uh, you know this is this is all starting to work its way into the market here's what concerns me about the stock market and why I might be on the other side of where killer is Um, it feels as if a lot of that rally we experienced over the course of these last few months has been fueled by a weak dollar. I do not see the dollar going down another 10 or 15%. At least I hope it doesn't because, you know, I, you know, I believe in a strong dollar. Uh, but it, it, let's, let's, for argument's sake, it, say it doesn't and we see some strength in the dollar, well, then what's going to happen is that you're going to see weakness in earnings, uh, and you're going to see more than likely a contraction in this expansion that we've seen over the course of the last few months. Mm. All of that, of course, coupled with the, flat, the fact that you've got some deflationary pressure, tells me that something else is going on there. And, and I'll point this out to you. This is the first week, and I, I tweeted this out, and I got a lot of people that actually said something, that it feels like the bottom vigilantes might be back. Mm. I'm starting to see them in the tenure. We, we started to see them in the short end. Now I'm starting to see them, you know, in the intermediate. They, they stepped away from the seven-year auction last week. The tenure now back at four one five. These are these are signs that those old bad vigilantes, the, the ones that we used to pay very close attention to, mm-hmm. might be working their way back. Edgar Denny's Edgar Denny's bond vigilantes. You know, you're um, just looking at the sheets here. The two-year note plus 13 bips this week. That's a big move back to 489. But the five-year was up 17 bips. And I have the 10-year at 416, up 12 bips. But um, the other thing, though, uh, with those higher interest rates, Jeff Kilberg, gold prices, gold down almost 1000 bucks, 1913. It's remarkable to see. And I think a lot of people have been trying to be patient owning gold. Uh, we had mass inflation a year ago in June. We had a CPI rating of 9.1. We're now at 3.2, and gold really never bulked up to 2,500. So I think there, there's reason to be impatient there. But I think, you know, to push back on Jack a little bit, I think there are some names. We talk about the, the portfolio that I manage, the Essential 40. To throw a little ticker out there, ESSIX. Those are names like Boeing. Those are names like Berkshire Hathaway. Those are names that I think are still reason to own. At the same time, you look at some of the airlines. You look at some of uh, you know Marathon uh, Petroleum. These are names that I think people are gravitating towards as they've gotten fully feasted on 5% yields in the two-year five-year. I believe that the yields will go back lower. I think the Fed can manipulate their big balance sheet still. So that's why I think rates go lower. All right. Jack Rosen, Chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group. Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial. Terrific stuff. Folks, we're going to take a break. Next up, Money and Politics with Liz Peake and with Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. 
We're going to do some money in politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and WABC radio host of More Money, playing after many of these same stations after this show. So, kids, welcome back. Um, I want to begin with Steve Moore. Steve, I heard you had a favorite electric bus maker named <laughs> Proterra, uh-huh. and I wondered if there was any truth to that. This is the modern-day Solyndra. Now is it Joe Biden's favorite electric vehicle bus, but it sounds a lot like Solyndra, and Jennifer Granholm was a big stock owner and made out mm-hmm. a lot of money. And lo and behold, Proterra, Biden went out there to see it. It went bankrupt. Now what's up with that? I'm crushed to see this. Yeah, I put all my 401k money into Proterra. Yes. I just thought yes. it was a can't-miss stock. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, Look, there's a lot to this story. Uh, Joe Biden, I think it was about a year, year and a half ago, had a big powwow with major CEOs of companies, including the CEO of Proterra. And he said uh, to the Proterra CEO, you're making me look good. Uh, I wonder <laughs> if he could take those words back now. This is a this is a company that was uh, making electric batteries for for buses, which, by the way, just as an aside, does that make any sense? We have natural gas buses in Washington, D.C., in a lot of cities, and those emit no carbon emissions in the atmosphere. What's wrong with natural gas? Why do we have to use electric batteries? But in any case, so very predictably, and this is the start of, I think you're going to see a cascade of these failures of green energy programs, because, Larry, it is simply an instant replay of what happened in the Obama administration. The only difference between Obama and Biden and their green energy programs is that Biden's program is 10 times larger Mm. than Obama's, so we're going to see 10 times the losses. Yeah, you know, part of this story, I don't know how much money they got, but... I can tell you you the answer to that, Larry. So they got a $100 million uh, forgiveness on their PPP loan, Right. Uh, and then they also now they they were not they did not get any direct money from Biden. But once they passed the uh, what I call well, the green energy New Deal bill. Yeah, they were in line to get, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of subsidies. But they went bankrupt before they could get their hands on the money. Well, the other thing is, Liz Peak, um, Jennifer Granholm sold shares for one point six million uh this is back in 2021, after Joe Biden publicly touted the company and went out there. So she kind of cashed in on that. And that's a little angle that I just wanted to add to this stupid story, because it just shows you more insider trading stuff. I mean, not that Joe Biden needs any more scandals, but here's another one. And she's got to be been the worst energy secretary in the history of the earth. Well, she isn't an energy secretary. She's a propagandist for uh, green energy, renewable energy programs that really aren't likely to work. I mean, to echo what Steve's saying, I keep thinking this is like a bunch of kids playing with toys and they've lost the instruction manual. So they really don't know how they fit together. And it's not going to turn out well because, in fact, they won't fit together. I mean, you're going to have people making electric cars and buses and whatever and they're not going to really be able to charge them efficiently because the charging apparatus isn't in place 
and the transition lines aren't in place to get the power to the... I mean, if you kind of back it up, Larry, there is no plan. There is no sort of long-term thinking through how our country can make this move. And, you know, I've written about this. I mean, communities are up in arms. They don't want wind. They don't want solar panels. (laughs) to, To generate the kind of solar infusion into our energy grid that they're talking about, you need to cover an area about the size of Tennessee. That's not going to happen. So, you know, the problem is this is really going to hurt people. It's going to hurt people in terms of the cost of power and electricity going up. Uh, It's already hurting people in terms of forcing them to buy more expensive appliances and stuff that don't work as well. It's really offensive. And you know, I mean, it's one of honestly many reasons we got to get Joe Biden out of the White House. We've got to derail this absurd, presumptuous invasion into how our country accesses power. Save America, retired so, Joe Biden. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Steve. Uh, so I wanted to add two quick points to what uh, Liz was saying. Number one, um, the I, I don't know if you saw the uh, s- the story about what's happening in California where they are basically now trying to outlaw diesel. Now, what, what is diesel used for? Diesel is used for trucks. You know, it's the most efficient yeah. way, especially for long-haul trucks who are tra- traveling across the country uh, with their big loads, sometimes two tons. And they're trying to, you know, force trucks, these huge trucks, to have batteries. And uh, I've talked to the trucking industry. It doesn't work. I mean, you can put a, an electric battery in a car. But in a truck with a two-ton cargo, I mean, yeah. it, so this stuff is so pie in the sky, it is it is outrageous. The second point I wanted to make is you may have seen, uh, Larry, in our hotline this week, we had an item about the fact that <laughs> in several countries that have had blackouts and brownouts, like South Africa and some of the European countries, the left is applauding this and saying, hey, yeah. guess what? Through these blackouts and brownouts, we've actually reduced our carbon emissions. And are these, again, I mean, it gets to Liz's point. Are these people insane? I mean, do you, do you know what a risk it is to health and safety of the American people when the lights go out and the electricity doesn't work to hospitals and schools and, uh, the grid system? I mean, it's, I just, I find it so, uh, outrageous that these people are so consumed and obsessed with climate change, they don't recognize the real threats. Well, hang on a second. Someone consumed with climate change. Liz, both you and Steve were right. Joe Biden has echoed it. The Inflation Reduction Act. I wish I hadn't called it that because it has less to do with inflation (laughs) than it has to do with providing alternatives that generate economic growth. What's he talking about? I thought it was an anti-inflation measure. Yeah. So I, I think this is maybe where the real cracks began in terms of how people regard Joe Biden. I actually think that you can measure this because when that bill came out and they tried to tout it as an anti-inflation measure, when uh, the CBO and other neutral organizations were saying, no, actually, this could increase inflation. I think the American public, I mean, if you look at Joe Biden's ratings on inflation, that one topic, which, by the way, according to economist polling, is still the number one issue of the day. It's, in, it's just he doesn't have any approval on inflation. I mean, he's just completely sunk. And one of the reasons is because of that bill. And when it came out, they're completely idiotic attempts to portray it as something that would help people save money and to drive prices down. It was nothing of the sort. And again, 
I mean, electricity prices are up, I think, 12 or 13 percent this year. That is completely a function of the push they're making for renewable energy. And that bill basically put that push on steroids. So it was a lie. Uh, I think it really tainted this administration. There have been other big lies, but this is one of the biggest. And, you know, I mean, what a foolish thing to say, because obviously it's going to haunt him. But he's completely right. He, he should never have called it that. But what, Steve, what's so interesting here is he says it's going to generate other forms of economic <laughs> growth. What yeah. is he talking yeah. about? What does that mean, other forms of economic growth? Well, it could mean the big S word, socialism, uh, oh. you know, a more. But I think that it's more um, of a kind of industrial policy model mm. that they yeah. believe the government can channel money to businesses and industries better than our private markets can. And remember, that was tried in the 70s by Jimmy Carter, and it was a complete failure. And you remember this, Larry, when you came in with Reagan, you know, we didn't do any more industrial policy. We cut taxes, cut regulations, and had the biggest boom in history. So uh, that act... Uh, this I, that model is very scary, and even some Republicans, unfortunately, Larry, are into the industrial model idea. But I wanted to make another point. There is one way that they have cut prices, and that is on prescription drugs because they've imposed price controls. Hmm. But one of your colleagues, I forget whether it was Tyler Goodspeed or um, somebody from your council, Thomas, he, he found, yeah, he found. I mean, this was an important, really important study that yes. Prices have come down for prescription drugs, but at what cost? Mm. This has put a huge drag on the new investment in research and development and new drugs for cancer and heart disease and multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's. All these things are going to be delayed in terms of finding a cure because we're not making, making, allowing companies to make a profit. Mm. Well, I think the generic point here is that Biden has adopted a centrally planned. Okay. Well, that's true. I think I mean, that's really I what it is. I think that's really true. If you start, I mean, what does that look like? That looks like the government taking a bigger and bigger share of GDP. And that mm-hmm. has happened. Yep. So, and the problem is, it's happening. And at the same time, the people directing that bigger, bigger share have really no idea what they're doing. So it's like the worst of all possible worlds. If you had a really a major brainiac in charge of this, who could foresee what would work and what wouldn't, that's one thing. But, you know, I'm focused on the auto industry. Our auto industry is being destroyed by these mandates and requirements that, you know, aren't going to, again, aren't going to work. I mean, now you have Ford kind of backtracking and saying, well, gosh, maybe we should redo our ambitions in terms of how much electric cars we're going to produce, you think, because they lost, what, $4.8 billion on Mm -hmm. their electric cars mm-hmm. yeah they should be and they're going to go to hybrids what's wrong with hybrids i mean that makes a lot of sense to me and you mm-hmm. and it can it can operate without the government having to fix a million problems that attach to electric purely electric vehicles but you know again there's just not much co- there's not much common sense uh orchestrating what i think is a really dangerous um Intru- again, intrusion into our energy policies. You know, Steve, I'm going to interview uh, Donald Trump later this coming week. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to talk to him Wednesday. I think we'll probably play it out Thursday. I want to ask him about this because, you know, Bidenomics is, I mean, Newt, G- Newt Gingrich called it big government socialism. 
uh, I don't know, almost two years ago. I still mm-hmm. think that's a reasonably good uh, definition, whether we call it the centrally planned economy. You know, you guys are giving examples here uh, in the climate change and in drug price controls. I mean, that is the Democratic Party vision now, is it not? Mm-hmm. It's, it, there's nothing left of free markets. There's nothing left of private investment. It's all a bunch of Democratic interest groups huddled around climate change, huddled around uh, uh, government-run health care. That's pretty much what it is. You've got a free enterprise party and you've got a um, government uh, planning party. Yeah, well, I'm not so sure the Republicans are a free enterprise party. But, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but you're Oops. right about the fact that Democrats are, are moving in that direction. And, and you know, one of the implications of this, I mean, if you look at what's happened under Biden, Uh, The truth is, uh, it's exactly the opposite of what he's saying. So people who are of high incomes are doing fine in this economy. They really are. I mean, the stock market has had a blockbuster year this year. Um, You know, people, if you're making a million dollars or more, you know, six, seven, eight percent inflation is not a burden. The people... This isn't trickling down. That's the irony. He, he calls Reaganomics trickle down economics. Actually, their plan is trickle down economics and the people are suffering the most. And this has to be a really important a message for the Republican candidate, whoever it might be, Trump or DeSantis or whoever, that your plan is actually making the poor in this country poor. The middle class is, class is getting shafted and your rich crony friends are doing just fine. Mm. I think mm-hmm. that's right. Take a quick break. We're with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, Steve Moore, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and host of More Money. Right after this show comes Steve's great show. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and WABC radio show More Money. You know, kids, just um, looking at all this, you got yourself a special prosecutor now. We had the story about the $20 million uh, web, uh, all the monies coming into the Hunter Biden committees uh, and so forth and so on. And the Hunter Biden business is blowing the lid off of Joe Biden's lies that he didn't know anything. But, Steve, you're running a piece in the hotline that I <laughs> wanted to just include here, because are we still thinking about growth, economic yeah. growth? I mean, after all, Bidenomics, as Liz mentioned earlier, Bidenomics is still very unpopular, okay? No, we haven't had a terrible recession yet. Yes, we've had some decline of inflation, although the level of prices is significantly above where it was two and a half years ago. But what about economic growth, Steve, which should be the sine non qua of uh, <laughs> government policies? Yeah, so true. And so they, if you look at the you know, horrendous forecast of where the budget is going and the debt and, and uh, government spending. Um, what One thing that's not well recognized is that the Congressional Budget Office and, and the Fed are only projecting, I think, 1.6 or 1.7 percent annual growth. And I think it's you, Larry, who looked at the numbers since World War II. Isn't it mm-hmm. close to 3.2 or something? for our 3.5, actually. 3, 3.5 has been the average. So we would grow half as fast over the next 
30 years as we have over the last 50 years. No, no, we can't. No, we got to generate more economic growth. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, uh, because I know you worked for John F. Kennedy, didn't you? I know you worked for Reagan and Trump, but I think you may have worked for JFK. <laughs> didn't too. quite get the but, <laughs> but, you know, JFK, people, this was an interesting election in 1960 because the economy was doing pretty well under Eisenhower, right? I mean, it was growing at... Two percent, two two to two and a half percent. Although there's been a recession, and and JFK went around the country very famously and talked about growth. And he said, "We can do better." Yeah. Remember, he, yeah. we can do better. Yeah. And that has to be, you know, look, the economy is growing, you know, at one or two percent right now. We can do much better, and we have to do much better because, as we showed in our chart, if you get three to three and a half percent growth for the next thirty years. Then things look a lot better, Larry. Then you don't have the debt going through the roof. So that's a precondition to getting this. And I don't hear Republicans talking enough about this. Well, that's the thing. Uh, uh, That chart is so important because if you scored 3.5% growth over the next 30, 40 years, the debt-to-GDP ratio would come back down to zero, which is really quite remarkable. I mean, we don't need it at zero, but it would come down to zero, at least arithmetically. And, Liz... You know, after uh, the first year in 2021, which was still the pandemic recovery year, but after that, in 2022 and the first half of 2023, the growth rate is only 1.3% at an annual rate for six quarters or 18 months. And that is very slow growth. And we're in this sort of uh, secular stagnation that Larry Summers talked about years ago. I don't think anybody's happy with that. Well, they shouldn't be happy with that because, as you guys have both pointed out, our fiscal prospects are really dark unless we grow faster than that. I was just sitting here thinking, you know, somebody who really did talk about growth was President Trump. When he ran in 2016, he talked about how cutting taxes and looser regulations could actually stimulate growth. Because don't forget, the nu- the numbers you show uh, in one of you, I forget who, in, in a recent piece, I think it was Larry, Three and a half percent. That went through 2005 because realistically, the Obama years were very slow growth period, worst recovery from a recession ever in our history. And there there was a good reason for that. I mean, yes, we had political turmoil. Yes, there was a hangover from the Great Recession. But it was also because, you know, all that blanket of regulatory uh, changes that Obama put in place really hurt growth. I mean, remember, we used to write about green shoots coming up after the Great Recession and how they'd be squashed by some new big, you know, footprint from the government kind of squashing one industry after another. And we're doing that now. And it's interesting to me that, that Republican candidates aren't really banging this drum because that is a message I think people would be very open to. Just think about how many small business owners are crushed by ridiculous, stupid regulations that are local, that are federal, and make their lives impossible. Anyone who has tried to start up a small business is open to that message. And all Americans are open to the idea that their taxes should be less and simpler. That was even the more popular notion that Trump had. But, you know, I I think the door is open for somebody to really kind of make that case uh, I, and I'm, I'm sure President Trump will, but other Republicans should be talking about it, too. Well, that's been a big flaw, but we will see how this thing plays out. I don't know. Joe Biden's in a heap of trouble on the economy. He's in a heap of trouble on the sun scandals. He's just in a heap of trouble. Liz Pete, thank you ever so much. 
Steve Moore, thanks ever so much. Steve Moore's great show coming up right after this one on many of these same stations. I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. We will talk to you next weekend.